turn to 1 Samuel, okay? Turn to 1 Samuel. And I need to give an uh, a, um, introduction to this message that's a bit personal, a bit more personal. Uh, I've asked a couple of you particularly to pray for me today. Um, I'm struggling with how to get my head and my arms around uh, this subject. Uh, it's a bit strange. It's the call uh, all about Saul that we'll be doing this week and next week. And this week we'll be doing the call of Saul. <laughs> And next week, we will be doing the fall of Saul. So if the messages are not good, at least the titles are cool. Okay, good. Yeah, the call of Saul and the fall of Saul. Um, but um, this is a difficult passage for me. I've always been perplexed by this transition from the leadership of, Saul, of, of Samuel to the leadership of Saul, the first king of Israel. And um, uh, I want to let you into a little bit of the preacher's mind and, and practice and so forth. Uh, it might be good for you to know some of that. Um, and, and we have a, a visiting pastor here, and we have other pastor preachers in the uh, sojourners, uh, so they can probably relate to this. It, if I was to give uh, a lecture, and I had one lecture to give to the budding homiletical students who will be pastors, it would go along these lines. Spend as much time in your preparation on working how to present the material and how to apply it as understanding the text itself, how to present the text and apply the text as to understanding the text itself. I just want to let you in on the uh, guild, uh, the, uh, the, the practice of preachers. Uh, a young preacher, if he's got any, if, if he's worth his salt, I don't know exactly what that exp- how that expression came to be, but we, I've, I, I grew up with it, worth his salt. If he's worth his salt, he's going to work on getting the text right, understanding the text. That's why we emphasize the biblical languages, because the Bible was not written in English, uh, and and we have some uh, folks from Egypt here. We love them, but the Bible wasn't written in Arabic either, Uh, uh, but but the Bible wasn't written in Armenian. I'm sorry to disappoint you, Vera. It wasn't written in Armenian. Uh, It it was written primarily in two languages, uh, Hebrew, also Aramaic, and and Greek. So, so, you know, some things can be lost in translation. So preachers need to understand the original or at least have access to those who understand the original to help them get the text right. Um, So young young preachers are spending a lot of time getting the text right, and that's commendable. You got to get the text right. Because you can never present it and apply it if you don't have it right. But because they spend, we spend so much time getting the text right, we don't spend as much time on this question. Now, how do I present it? I think I understand what it says. Now, how do I present it? And involved in that is how do I apply it? And if a young preacher has has a difficulty, it's getting to that. 
How do I present it? You say, well, you just present it. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little do you know uh, about uh, you can understand it yourself, even in your heart, but you can't always present it. So you got to work on that. The arrangement of the text and how to present it and, and uh, 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 to what degree to use visual aids or audible aids or uh, other aids uh, to, to get the message across. Because understanding it, young preacher, does not mean you're going to be able to communicate it adequately. So you've got to work on that. And uh, a lot of preachers don't. Uh, so I would I I would give that lecture and, and then how to apply it to life legitimately uh, because sometimes we can apply it illegitimately. Uh, there's the uh, uh, preacher that uh, he only knew the story of David and Goliath, and uh, you know you know he did, he didn't know much of the Bible, but he knew David and Goliath. Oh, southern preacher, and every sermon ended up David and Goliath. And uh, and one guy says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna stump him. I'm gonna give him a text that he cannot get David and Goliath out of." <laughs> and so he asked him one day. He says, "How do you understand the reference in Job to Pleiades and Orion? That's your text. Preach on Pleiades constellations, Pleiades and Orion. Job talks about that." Well, the uh, southern preachers. Okay, Pleiades and Orion, they were two constellations in the sky. And the children of Israel were camped out the night before. They was going to encounter the Philistines, and they looked up in the sky, (laughs) and they saw these two constellations. And that brings me to the story of David and Goliath. Yeah, what do you think about that, uh, brother? Uh, brother seminarian here. I don't know, boy. So uh, now, so I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, uh, I think I understand this text. I think I do, but how do I present it? And so, uh, uh, be honest with you uh, in that regard. So we're going to look at all about Saul today. The call of Saul. Uh, and it, it's a survey. And part of my challenge, I guess, is that we're surveying chapters 9 through 12. That, that's, a, that's a challenge. For those of you who are visiting today, we're preaching through, teaching through the Old Testament by characters. And so in 1 Samuel, we've looked at Hannah, we've looked at Eli, and we've looked at uh, Samuel. And we finished last week in uh, 1 Samuel 8 at the beginning, the sad story of Samuel having two grown boys who go bad who start taking bribes and, and, uh, and, and are corrupt. And it was a heartache, no doubt, to old Samuel. Now, Samuel is getting old, and it's time for a transition. And God says, not your boys, Samuel. We're not going to have your boys, um, but I want you uh, to uh, choose a king. But the, the choice came actually after um, the uh, uh, children of Israel saw these corrupt sons, and they said, "We want a king." That's the message in First Samuel eight. They look at these corrupt sons, and they said, "We don't want them to uh, to uh, follow Samuel." So it's now time for us to have a king. 
And uh, Samuel's concerned that they're rejecting God as king by asking as a king. But that's the background. And that introduces us to Saul, who becomes the first king of uh, Israel. Now, uh, here's the challenge. Is it right or is it wrong to have a king? If you read this, Samuel says, by asking for a king, you're rejecting God as king. Okay? Because here's a 50-cent word. You young preachers shouldn't use this with your congregation unless you call it a 50-cent word, and then they know it's going to be a big word, okay? Uh, You know, uh, a theocracy. Ancient Israel was a theocracy. And a theo, 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 theocracy, who is king? God, okay? Uh, And that's the ideal. God is king. So in asking for a human king, you're rejecting the theocratic rule of God. But the thing is, back in Genesis 17, uh, God told Abraham that kings would come from him. In Genesis 49, 8 through 10, we are told that one of the sons of Jacob, Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, uh, the scepter. Scepter is a symbol of a king. And we do know that eventually the king came from the tribe of Judah. And who was that? Don't say Saul. (laughs) He said Jesus. Now, how can I say that he's wrong? Okay, good. How can I say that uh, he's wrong? Okay, good, good, good. But before Jesus... David, okay, good, good, good. How can I say that he's wrong, right? Yeah, uh, uh, so, so oh, yes, so, so, so we know that the tribe of Judah produced the king. So what is this about rejecting God as king? And not only that, Deuteronomy 17, the great theological book of Deuteronomy says, when you come in to the land and... You set a king over yourself. This is what the king should be. He should not multiply horses. He should not multiply gold. He should not multiply wives. And he should have a copy of the Torah and he should read it every day and obey it and teach the people. That's the type of king that I want. God never commanded a king. This is very important. He did not say, when you come into the land, you will set over you a king. He says, when you come into the land and you set a king over you, this is the type of person that you should set over you. One who doesn't put his trust in his money or one who doesn't multiply wives and one who doesn't multiply uh, horses. What's wrong with horses? Some of you own horses. Nothing wrong with owning horses, but multiplying horses as a nation means what? You're building a strong army and you're not trusting me, you're trusting your army, okay? That's that's why it says, you know, and uh, years ago I heard, I don't know if he was a southern preacher, but I heard a preacher say, sounds like he's describing Solomon (laughs) when he gives these uh, regulations. Yeah, that's true. Solomon broke all of those. He multiplied horses and multiplied wives and uh, also... Um, um, multiplied uh, gold and and so forth. And one thing he didn't do is that he didn't have a copy of the Torah beside him and studying it and teaching it. So when when you have a king, this is what your king should be like. 
So God says, I'm the king, and you ought to be satisfied with me, but if you do have a king, this is the way he should be. So there's these dynamics going on. So when they ask for a king, Samuel says, you've rejected God as king, and you want a king. Was it wrong to ask for a king? No. But if you read 1 Samuel 8, you'll see why it was wrong. We want a king. You've read it. Everybody knows 1 Samuel 8 through 12, don't you? Anyway, anyway, um, uh, uh, what do they say? What do they say? We want a king because God has commanded us to have a king. No, we want a king like all the other nations. See, that's, that's the problem. That's the problem. It wasn't necessarily wrong to have a king because a king could be godly and lead them in the right steps. But that isn't what they said. We look at the, at the nations around and they have a king and he looks so glorious and he's riding on his big horse and he leads these great armies out to battle. We want that. So it was their motive for asking for a king. So that dynamic is going on here. Uh, they're settling for less than the best. Let's put it that way. The best was just having God as king. The next best is having a king, but not because you just want to be like all the other nations. It was a worldly request in that regard. So uh, that's one of the dynamics that's going on here. So uh, now we, uh, we get to uh, chapters 9 through 12, and I call it this, searching for donkeys and finding a throne. I was trying to find a D word, searching for donkeys and finding a, and I couldn't find a D, you know, so uh, for, for a throne. So searching for donkeys and finding a throne. You have one? Dominion. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Dynasty. Somebody's been watching TV. Okay, good. Searching for donkeys and finding a dynasty. Where were you when I needed you? I, I, uh, that's good. All right. Searching for donkeys and finding a dynasty. All right. So he, here's what's going on. Now, we're introduced to Saul in chapter 9. There was a man named Kish and, and a man of Benjamin, and he had a son. And uh, he's described, handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. We're introduced right away to uh, this man uh, who's good-looking. He's got all the physical characteristics. He's tall, uh, uh, taller than anyone else. And that even figures in something else sort of like ironically uh, later on that he's so tall uh, that he can't hide among the baggage. Now, now uh, what's going on here? Uh, we're introduced to him, and he's searching for donkeys. He's searching for donkeys. All right. it's, it's a very common thing. You, you know, if I had written it, I would have been, he was out riding on a horse, uh, searching for his place in life. No, he's searching for donkeys. And he can't find his donkeys. Very, very basic type of uh, thing. And uh, he, uh, uh, he he finally asks for help. You know, guys don't ask for directions, but uh, but uh, you know, he finally gives up. He can't find the donkeys, so uh, uh, somebody comes up to him actually and, and helps him. All right, now um, uh, 
Uh, now, uh, uh, what, what, what's going on? Uh, he says, well, there's a man, there's a seer, seer, S-E-E-R, uh, uh, and we're told that later they were called prophets, but earlier they were called seers. So, um, um, so he finally finds uh, Samuel, and again, I'm going through this very, very quickly in chapter 9. He finally finds Samuel, and the Lord indicates to Samuel that this is the man. So uh, he says, three things are going to happen to you, uh, Saul. Uh, here they are. Uh, he'll meet two people in a certain place, and they will tell him that the donkeys have returned home as mysteriously as they disappeared. Then a second sign is he will meet three more people at another place, and they will give him two loaves of bread. These maybe are signs to Saul that, you know, this is of God. And then thirdly, uh, at another place, he'll meet a music group. And this writer says, on their way home from church after a midweek service, and a ministry team singing in, in, in languages probably, it's something more than prophesying or in a prophetic frenzy, as some of the texts say. Saul will find that the Lord's Spirit then comes on him uh, too. He will join in, and he'll be turned into a different person. Now, here, here, you preachers, it only gets more complex for, the, for us as preachers to sort out. This looks good. He's on a good start. He is giving guidance, and all three things happen to him. And then the Spirit of God comes up on him, and he's turned into a different person, and he even starts to prophesy himself. The reason this is perplexing is because the way this man ends up, we're going to particularly see it next week, the way this man's up, it doesn't end well. He doesn't turn out well, but he's starting well. And, and, and here's having another heart. It, the Spirit of God is coming upon him, and I'm reading this, and I'm saying this guy is going to be a hot shot. This guy is going to be a superstar. doesn't work that way. It only makes the Saul story even more perplexing to comprehend because Saul doesn't turn out well. But look at this big start. All right, so that's, uh, that's uh, uh, so all those things happen to him. And, and then we have this drama in three stages of him becoming king. Let's go to the next uh, here, okay? Saul becomes king. First of all, he's anointed at Ramah. Then he's selected at Mizpah. Then he's confirmed at Gilgal, very geographically. Now, I would recommend, I didn't assign you last week to read through this ahead of time. But in case you, 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 you get lost among all the details of, of some of these uh, events, I, I would encourage you to read through here again with my guidance here and see how you can make sense of it. First of all, he's anointed at Ramah. Uh, at, at the end of chapter 9, I'm going to pick it up, reading at verse 27. And as they were going to the outskirts of the city... Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Now is the time to come to anoint this man as the new, as the first king of Israel. Verse 1, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, Saul's head, 
and kissed him. Very interesting. And said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Long verse. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Here is the first instance in the Old Testament of an Israelite king being anointed. Now, how's your Hebrew? How's your Hebrew? You know a little Hebrew. You do? Yeah, he, he, he guy told me, he, I know a little Hebrew. He's, he's my tailor, you know, I take, anyway, anyway, um, uh, thank you for laughing. Um, uh, 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 what's the Hebrew for anointed one? Mashiach. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And from Mashiach, we get the English word Messiah. Very good. Thank you. Saul becomes a Messiah, an anointed one. Okay. I like to distinguish the kings of, of Israel as a Messiah with a small m. Because later on, there will be the Messiah with a capital M, all right? So that's, uh, so, but there were a bunch of Messiahs with a small M in the Old Testament. Prophets were Messiahs. Uh, They began their ministry by being anointed with oil. Uh, Elijah, Elisha makes references to uh, prophets being anointed to begin their ministry. Priests were anointed with oil when they began their ministry at the age of 30. And a king was anointed with oil. So each of them became a Messiah, and I say with a small m, an anointed one. And Saul becomes an anointed one. Uh, Now, the anointing is to set a person apart, not aside, but apart, for special consideration. Uh, The prophet began his ministry by being anointed. The priest began his ministry by being anointed. And here, the king begins his ministry by being anointed. Uh, Of course, later on, we will see the Messiah with a capital M come because he will be the anointed prophet, priest, and king, the totally unique person in all of Israelite history that would unite all three of those offices, prophet, priest, and king, in his ineffable person and work, our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is not a family name. Jesus is Christ. Jesus wasn't his first name and Christ is family name. Okay, good, good. Can you see after Jesus was born? I've told this before, so if you've heard it, Humor me and giggle at least. Okay, good. Uh, 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 so, so where do Mary and Joseph go to the city hall in Bethlehem? They want to register his birth. And uh, they say, uh, what's his first name? And, and, and they say, Jesus. And, and they say, what's his last name? They say, Christ. And they say, what's your name? Well, I'm Mary Christ, and this is my husband, Joseph Christ. <laughs> no! Because Christ is not a last name. It's not a family name. But we use it so often, we think it's uh, Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name. No, it's a title. Right? 
Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who fulfills the prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament in his person, okay? So you don't say, except Christ is your Messiah. Why? Because you're saying the same thing. Accept the Messiah as your Messiah. Well, I guess, you know, but, you know, so you accept Jesus as your Messiah. Okay, good. Got that? All right, good, good. All right, so he's anointed. Well, that's good. Eh, okay. But it gets a little more complex than that, all right? Good. Uh, now, n- notice these signs that take place to him. Uh, first of all, uh, to confirm him, uh, in verse 2, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. Good. Now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys. Then verse 3, uh, then you shall go from there, and uh, three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, each carrying three young goats. Good. That took place. So these, these are things that are happening to confirm to Saul that he's been chosen as the king. After that, you shall come to Giviot where there is a garrison of Philistines. And there you shall come to the city. You'll meet a group of prophets. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. And here it even gets more complex. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul. Well, how could the Spirit of the Lord come upon somebody who looks like eventually he's an unbeliever? These are challenging issues. But remember, uh, the Spirit of the Lord coming on people in the Old Testament isn't the same thing as the new birth in the New Testament. We cannot imagine, because it's unscriptural, that we are saved and the Spirit of God comes to live with us. We're baptized with the Spirit, and then the Spirit leaves us, because that's unscriptural. That doesn't happen with a Christian. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit sometimes came upon people and then left them. And you say, Ugh. This is complex. Well, it's a different role. The Spirit of the Lord came upon, rushed upon people in the Old Testament to equip them to do a job. We see this in the book of Judges. The Spirit of God comes upon somebody who is not the nicest person, Samson. The Spirit of God comes upon Samson. And to what? To give him strength to do a job, okay? Didn't come upon Samson because he was a godly man. Uh, Gideon is a mixed bag. Will the real Gideon please stand up? I mean, is he righteous or not? But the Spirit of God comes upon him. So, so the Spirit of God coming upon people in Judges and in Kings wasn't the new birth. Got that? That's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When a person is saved in the New Testament, he's baptized in the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes to live within us. And, and it's a permanent uh, experience uh, until we go home to glory. The Spirit coming upon people in the Old Testament wasn't necessarily related to their salvation. It was to equip them to do a job. So now Saul is equipped to do a job. Uh, it gets more complex, and we'll talk about that next week, when Saul goes progressively down, down, downhill. But that's the fall of Saul. We're still talking about the call of Saul uh, this week. Well, things are going well. He's anointed at Ramah. Then he's selected at Mizpah, uh, verses 17 through 27 in chapter 10, where it says he's head and shoulders above everybody. Um, 
look please at verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites were taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they had sought him, he could not be found. Wilt Chamberlain can't be found. How do you hide Wilt Chamberlain? Some, some of you kids say, who's Wilt Chamberlain? <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And some of you younger kids would say, who's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? How about Kristaps Porzinski? He's seven feet three. And he's playing for... The Dallas Mavericks. How do you hide Kristaps Porzinski, seven foot three? It, you know, it's pretty hard to hide him. You say, uh, you know, how about Dick Martin? Ah, yes. How, do you, how does Dick Martin hide among the baggage? Now you know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. I got to find something because I don't know what this text means. Chris, I don't know what this text means, so I've got to say something, you know, to entertain them. Uh, yeah, uh, stay with me. Don't leave yet. All right, good. Verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the other people from his shoulders upward. Interesting text. Uh, you know, uh, and, and, and again, they say what has come down to us into verse 24, long live the king. And, and so Saul, first of all, is anointed at Ramah, then he's selected at Mizpah, then he's confirmed at Gilgal, confirmed at Gilgal. So there's a process here. It looks like he was anointed and then he went back home. And, and that's something else. We say anointed, He's chosen as king. Why didn't he go into the palace? There was no palace. <laughs> Why didn't he sit on the throne? There was no throne. Why didn't he enter into his kingship? Somebody says, what's kingship? What's a king supposed to do? Where's the job description? <laughs> so, so that may help you. Um, he doesn't really enter into his kingship until he defeats a foreign army. That's when he really publicly became king. So it's, 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 the, the dynamics here are fascinating. He goes back home. <laughs> king Saul, back home, you know. You know, it, it, you know, nobody waiting on him. Because this is a transition. Nobody knows exactly what a king is supposed to do until he defeats an enemy in chapter 11. Now, write this down. Jabesh Gilead. You say, how do you spell it, Dr. V? I, I, I don't have it here. Jabesh Gilead. Write it down. Over in Ammon, uh, over on the other side of the Jordan, is a little town named Jabesh Gilead. And Saul takes an Israelite army and relieves the siege of Jabesh Gilead by the Ammonites. It, it looks like just a, a meaningless factoid, but it's not. Because Jabesh Gilead is going to figure later on, later on, and to understand why 
let me tell you, let me fast forward. When Saul is killed and he's hung on the, hanged on the wall of Beit Shan. Some of you have been with me there at Beit Shan. Hanged on the wall at Beit Shan, headless body. He and his son, Jonathan. Somebody comes in the middle of the night and quote, quote, rescues his, their bodies and gives them a decent funeral, the men of Jabesh Gilead. So, you know, you know you, you, texts stick together here. So the men of Jabesh Gilead never forgot what Saul did for them, and they at least rescued his body from the shame and disgrace of being hanged on the wall at Beit Shan by the Philistines. So I, anyway, so when we get to that, I don't know who'll be preaching then. Who knows? Maybe it'll be Abner Chow. You never know. <laughs> Didn't say that. Okay. Um, um, uh, 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 where was I? Jabesh Gilead, yeah, yeah, okay, good. So that's, that's what happened. So look at verse 15, chapter 11. All the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Well, finally, it's come together. Now, how do we make some sense out of this? Anointed, then he goes back home. Selected, but then he's not really king, uh, I mean, outwardly, but confirmed at Gilgal, and all the people say, long live the king. And then, I think they build a palace for him, but not until then. Now, Samuel gives a farewell address in chapter 12, Samuel's warning. The old man Samuel, he's still got a few years left. Must have been difficult for him. Maybe he was hoping his sons would be his successors, but they turned out to be bad guys. So now he's gone through this process, and Saul is the new king. Samuel gives a farewell address. It's like the last speech that a departing king gives or a departing president gives before the next one takes over, and that's in chapter 12. And I think it's important. It's important to look at a couple of things here. Let's put it this way. If we just have a king, all our problems will be solved. Just having a king. We'll be like the other nations, and uh, wow, he'll go forth to battle. And we, it's, now we've got a king. All, Saul Samuel says, I want to tell you something. Just having a king is not going to mean you're going to be successful. Because in the, it, it's still a theocracy, guys. The king is ruling under God. We're still responsible to God. So if you want God's blessing on you, you are going to have to obey him. Just having a king is not going to solve all your problems. Look at chapter 12. Look at chapter 12. Verse 13. Now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Now all your problems are going to be solved. No. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice 
and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And so what's it going to be any good for you to have a king if you don't obey God? Samuel's final warning is, God has given you what you wanted, but I want to tell you, the king is not going to be a solution to all your problems. Now, let me get political here. I always get political and I get myself in trouble. So here it comes. Boy, if we just have the right president, we'll emerge into a heavenly nirvana on earth in the United States. If we just get the right president, you're no better than the Israelites. Wake up and vote for me. No, no. (laughs) Wake up. Some of you spend more time watching Fox News than reading your Bible. Shame on you. Why, you got to know what's happening. Got to know all the bad guys out there, and there are some bad guys out there. And we got to know who the good guys are. You're falling into the same trap that they fell into. If we just have a king, if we just have a king, Samuel says, you got a king, now obey the Lord. If you and your king will obey the Lord, it'll be good. It's not just having a king. Hey, listen, I would prefer a president who wasn't in favor of killing babies to honor women's rights. Believe me, I don't want a president that advocates killing babies. Of course not, you know. I just want to let you know that. But getting the right president, who is even a born-again president doesn't mean we're going to move into the heavenly kingdom of God on earth. Wake up, people. Varner's not saying, standing up here saying don't go out and vote, but, but be realistic. The kingdom of God is not going to be brought in if we get the right president. Wake up. Spend a little more time reading your Bible and obeying than watching Fox News. Now I got myself in trouble but I'm not sorry for it. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh. People are leaving. (laughs) Keep balance, folks. Oh, if that party gets in, oh, what's going to happen to us? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? We had eight years of so-and-so, and we had eight years of so-and-so, and are we any closer to the kingdom of God? Just make sure you have your faith in the right thing, not in our political processes, as important as they may be. Do I like what's going on in Sacramento? No. No! But I'm not going to lose my faith. Oh, we're not going to lose our faith. Well, the way you talk and the way you place your faith in politicians makes me wonder if you're going to lose your faith, okay? So let's just make sure 
that we spend more time reading our Bible than fretting about the next election. I will. And you can always move to Iowa. All right, enough silliness, enough silliness, but I hope I've made my point. Now, you say, where's Jesus in all this? Where's Jesus in all this? Look at this. Um, Saul is anointed privately as king. Then he's chosen publicly to be king and then starts to enter into his role as king. What's going on here? I think there's a, there's a lesson here. Somebody says, you can see Jesus in almost every text. Well, I'm not going to say Jesus is in this text, but there is a principle here that relates to our Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah King, and that is this. Saul was anointed king in 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, uh, 9 and 10, later publicly became king. Same thing happened to David or, or will happen to David. In a few weeks, we're going to move into David uh, from Saul, and we're going to see a little shepherd boy is what? Anointed as king in Bethlehem. He doesn't publicly become king until 2 Samuel 5. From 1 Samuel 16, he's a lad. He grows up. He even works in Saul's uh, um, palace, playing the... uh, a harp, uh, and then he, uh, the liar, right? And then he's, he's, he's a fugitive. What kind of a king is this? It's not until much later, not only is Saul removed, but Saul's son is removed, that David publicly becomes king. So same thing happened with David as happened with Saul. There's a theological paradigm going on here. Is Jesus king? Yeah, there's an album that just came out that told us that. Jesus is king. <laughs> oh, Varner, don't go there. Come on. Stick. <laughs> it is theoretically accurate to say that Jesus is king, but yet he has not entered into his public kingship. Think about this. Think about this. It's theologically accurate to say that Jesus was anointed as Christos king, Matthew 3, at his baptism. But later he will publicly become king when he defeats the armies at the battle of Gog and Magog and he reigns in Revelation 19 as king of kings and lord of lords. Was he king before? Yes. But he was set apart designated as the Christos anointed king, but he will enter in publicly to his role as king when he's king of kings and lord of lords in his second coming in Revelation 19. See the principle? See the principle? Yes, I don't know, Warner. I'm still not convinced. All right. What did Samuel do to Saul when he anointed him? He kissed him. Which is probably the ancient, uh, the ancient uh, example of an embrace. Don't worry, I'm not going to kiss you. 
I'm Italian. He says he's Italian. It's fine. <laughs> embracing. Embracing. Kissing means embracing. Welcome to the kingship, okay? So he kissed him. Oh, look at this. Look at this. In Psalm 2, we read that there's the Son of God who is exalted to be the Son of God. Psalm 2, 8. The nations are raging. The people's imagining a vain thing. They've gathered themselves against the Lord and against his anointed one. But the Lord will have them in derision. Then shall he say, the son, this is my son. This is my son. Today have I begotten you. The king of kings and Lord of lords. And when, it, when the Psalm 2 ends, it says about the nations who were in anger and in rage, submit to the Son, trust in Him. That's your way out. And then it says, Nashku, bar, pan, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way. The answer to the nation's rage is to recognize the Son of God. Nashku Barpan, kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The John 3.16 of the Old Testament is Psalm 2.12. We kiss the Son. We reverence the Son. We welcome the Son. We embrace the Son. That's the only answer to the rage of nations today against God. Kiss the Son. He's the King of kings, and He's the Lord of lords. Shall we stand for closing prayer? Father, thank you for the difficult texts, the hard-to-understand texts. Lord, I confess, I know I may not have plumbed all the depths of this drama with Saul, but I pray that we'll go from here uh, not making the mistakes that foolish Saul made in the days ahead, learning from them, but recognizing that in your providence he became king, he became the anointed one, and even in his imperfections, in his office, He spoke of one who will be the righteous king, the one who all the nations, if they are to be blessed, are to surrender to him and kiss him and welcome him and honor him. May the king of kings and Lord of lords remind us, Lord, as we place our trust in man and presidents and in officers, we pray that we will know that ultimately our hope is in the Son the King of kings and Lord of lords. We do ask for wisdom for those who rule over us. We pray that we would lead a peaceful life, as Paul says, uh, that we might uh, lead a peaceable life in all godliness, that they would keep us safe and that you would give wisdom to those who make those decisions. We do honor them, but we don't place our faith in them, Lord. Guide us in that regard, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.